the church is meant to be a harbinger of the new heavens and the new earth. Um, you, as an individual Christian, are meant to be a harbinger of the new heavens and the new earth. So when people experience Alliance Bible Church, when people experience you, are you giving them a taste of heaven to come? Without gospel safety and time, I don't think that's possible. Last week we looked at the importance of these three. We, we did that by looking at the various manifestations of the dwelling place of God in the Bible from the beginning to end. And we saw that individual Christians in the church are the dwelling place of God and therefore not just Eden remixed, but they're an anticipation of the new heavens and the new earth to come. Gospel safety and time is critical to seeing us be a church where we become a harbinger of the new heavens and the new earth. I want to review what I mean by these three terms, gospel safety and time. First, gospel people, and that's both non-Christians and Christians, need multiple exposures to the happy news of the gospel from one end of the Bible to the other. The gospel is not just the thing lost people need to believe in order to be saved. The gospel is the truth Christians need to believe in order to be transformed. And because we leak, we need multiple exposures to it. Second, safety. We need the safety of non-accusing sympathy so we can admit our problems honestly. The church needs to be a safe place for people to say, hey, I'm struggling with this, can you help me? And we respond in gentleness and graciousness. And third time, people need plenty of time to rethink their lives at a deep level because people are complex and changing isn't easy. Gospel plus safety plus time. They, they equal gospel doctrine and gospel culture. Gospel doctrine and gospel culture is the result of gospel safety time. And last week we looked at the importance of it. Now today I wanna dive into um, gospel doctrine Next week, we'll tackle gospel culture. I don't look at gospel doctrine today. I want to do that by asking two questions. First, what is gospel doctrine? And second, how does gospel doctrine change us? I don't think it's just information that's memorized. I really think it's truth that when put in the hands of the Spirit has the ability to reform human hearts. So what is gospel doctrine and how does gospel doctrine change us? First, what is gospel doctrine? In, in attempting to teach our kids the gospel at, their, at the youngest age, we, we taught them that the gospel is Jesus died for our sins. That's the one we started with. Um, and for, for small children, it's great. That's a great place to start. But when you look at that, those five words with adult eyes, you realize, well, that kind of raises some questions, doesn't it? Who's Jesus? <laughs> uh, why does he have to die? And what, what's the big deal with this thing that we're calling sins? So while it's good to start there, you realize, well, if that's the definition of the gospel, it needs to be broadened a little bit because it's, it's not... It's, it's bigger than that. It raises questions, and, and those need to be asked and answered if we're going to get at what we understand gospel doctrine to be. Throughout the centuries, Christians have wrestled with this. We aren't new to the game here. The question, what is the gospel, has been on the, the hearts and minds of Christians for centuries. 
And the reason Christians have wanted to know why it is the gospel's bigger than just those five words is because of passages like this one. In John's gospel, chapter five, Jesus is speaking. He says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. If you believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote about me. Moses writes the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Jesus is saying Moses in those books wrote about him. So suddenly we can't just find a definition to gospel doctrine by looking at the New Testament because Jesus is saying, no, Moses wrote about me. Same thing happens in Luke 24. We read this, Jesus said to his disciples, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Now he's opened up a broader swath of the Old Testament saying it's about him. So if Jesus is the epicenter of the gospel and all of the Bible in some way testifies to Jesus, then the whole Bible must say something about the gospel. And throughout the centuries, Christians have wrestled with this, have been fascinated by it. How does Genesis to Revelation answer the question, what is the gospel? It's a little bit of a lesson in historical theology, and that is how have Christians in other centuries come to understand something about the Bible? And we're helped by our brothers and sisters in Christ who are with Jesus today in coming to a better understanding of what we mean by gospel doctrine and how the whole Bible explains that. In order to get an answer to this question, Christians in centuries past have asked four additional questions. They've asked this, who made us and to whom are we accountable? What is our problem? What is God's solution to our problem? And how can I be included in his solution? Now keep in mind, these four questions are being asked to try to get at the answer to the one question of what is the gospel? Because Christians have wanted to take into account Genesis to Revelation in order to answer that question. So Christians in centuries past have come to the conclusion on uh, this conclusion on these four questions. They have said, well, we are created by and accountable to God. Our problem is our sin against him. God's solution is salvation through Jesus Christ. And we come to be included in that salvation by repentance and faith. I would say that these are four really good statements that drive at the core of what gospel doctrine is. In fact, these four statements are even beyond that. These four statements serve as the skeletal structure for the entire arc of the Bible's grand narrative. So what I want to do in the remainder of our time is to run with this fourfold definition of gospel doctrine and spend the rest of our time trying to show the difference it makes. What difference does this make? As I mentioned, I really believe that in the hands of the Holy Spirit, God is able to use gospel doctrine to reform lives, to change them. And so I want to explore that a little bit in the time that we have 
left this morning. So how does gospel doctrine change us? How does gospel doctrine change us? Let's take the first aspect to gospel doctrine, the first statement. We have been created by and are accountable to God. So this is part of gospel doctrine. We need this statement in there to make heads or tails of why it is Jesus is dying and what the big deal is about sin. So it doesn't just start with Jesus died for our sins. It starts before that because we need the before stuff in order to answer and understand the Jesus died part. So what are the implications for our lives of the fact that God created us and we are accountable to him? Well, first of all, I come to realize that I am a contingent being. I'm a derivative. I am not autonomous. I am not self-existing. I'm not self-creating. I am intensely dependent. God gives me every breath I breathe. The Apostle Paul in speaking to the Athenians in Acts 17 says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. I am a contingent, dependent being. That's the first implication of this part of gospel doctrine. Second, when I realize that God made me and I'm accountable to him, I realize I fall under his authority. Because he made the universe, he gets to decide the rules for how this one operates. I once heard a story of a pastor who was interacting with, with a skeptic who had become really kind of nasty in his tone, very, very angry um, with God and the way God governed this universe. And the pastor replied to him kind of slyly. He said, well, if you don't like the way this one operates, go create your own, and then you can decide how that one operates. At times, we need to be confronted with the authority of God. We need to realize we don't call the shots. He does. Third, when I realize that I have been made by and I'm accountable to God, I exist for whatever his stated purposes are. Because God may be, he gets to decide what purpose I have, what purpose you have in this world. Suddenly, this is a pretty big God, isn't he? This is not a God you can negotiate with. Daniel chapter four, we read this. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? So what would happen if this particular aspect to gospel doctrine really penetrated the fibers of our being? I am made by and I am accountable to this God. If I'm a contingent being under the authority of God, existing for his purposes alone, I should be supremely interested in what he thinks, in what he wants, in what his plans are, in what his purposes are. I should be supremely interested in, in seeking to think God's thoughts after him. Additionally, once discovering what those are, I should be supremely interested in seeing my life lived in harmony 
with what his plans, purposes, desires, wants, thoughts are. So let me ask you, to what extent are you genuinely, supremely interested in what God wants and thinks? Has that interest in discovering God's wants, thoughts, desires created in you a craving for his word where we discover those things? Second statement, our problem is our sin against him. Part of gospel doctrine is not just that we've been created by and are accountable to God. Part of gospel doctrine is that we are sinners. We're, we're pretty messed up people. We've rebelled against and, and disobeyed this God. Now, how does that aspect to gospel doctrine in the hands of the Holy Spirit serve to change us? First of all, when I realize the enormity of my sin in the eyes of this holy God, it should bring me to sorrow over my rebellion. I have defied the God who made me, who gives me each breath I breathe. My sin against him is not just oops, it's cosmic treason. It's interesting the, the metaphors and pictures that God uses in the scriptures to try to drive home to his people the significance of sin. The one that's used more than any other in the Bible is adultery. In fact, an entire book of the Bible is devoted to that. The book of Hosea, God tells Hosea to go marry a prostitute and to stay faithful to her in spite of her daily occupation. And God does this to try to convey to the people of Israel what their sin against him is like. It's spiritual whoredom. So when I come face to face with this, is my heart brought to sorrow over this cosmic treason, over this spiritual infidelity. Second implication of seeing myself as a sinner is humility. Given my dependent state and my cosmic treason, I don't have a whole lot of legs to stand on when it comes to clinging to my rights. I'm more sinful, flawed, and messed up than I can possibly imagine. That ought to breed humility. And third, when I look at my sin in its face, hopefully I'm brought to a place of longing. Sin makes a mess of our world. It makes a mess of our lives. Every religion in the world agrees there's something wrong with us. This creates a longing for something more, for something better. We long for a world without sickness, without disease, without cancer. We long for a world without injustice. We long for a world without deterioration. We long for homes without conflict. We long to escape death and live. We should long for freedom from sin and complete holiness to God. We long for these things. If that is what's created in us, we should long supremely for God to consummate his kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. It should create in us a homesickness for heaven. The Apostle Paul in Romans 8 writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Third, God's solution is salvation through Jesus Christ. 
heart of gospel doctrine is that God saves us on his initiative alone through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, how does that change us? In the hands of the Holy Spirit, how does this aspect of gospel doctrine change us? Well, it changes our view of God because part of what's wrong with us is our attitude towards him needs to be changed. And hopefully when we look at this aspect of gospel doctrine, we're coming to realize the enormity of God's love for us. In the salvation secured for us in Jesus Christ, how much must God love us to do this, particularly given who we are and what we've done? It's one thing to die for somebody who's lovely and lovable, but neither of those characterize us in our sinful state. 1 John 4, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Next, my attitude towards God has changed and that I come to see him as merciful. I'm not getting what I deserve. That's mercy. When I don't get something I do deserve, which in this case is the consequences for my sin, I deserve to be the recipient of God's justice. But instead, God enacts his justice for my sin on Jesus. So on the cross, Jesus got what I deserved. I'm not getting something I do deserve. That's mercy. 1 Peter 1.3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And third, my attitude towards God has changed that I come to see him as gracious. Mercy is when I don't get something I do deserve. Grace is when I do get something I don't deserve. All the merits and privileges Jesus earned through the perfect life he lived, I'm the recipient of when I put my faith and trust in him alone. Ephesians chapter two, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. We deserve God's justice. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And lastly, we come to be included in that salvation by faith and repentance. So part of gospel doctrine is that we get credit for the life Jesus lived and the death he died by repenting of our sin, putting our trust in him. How does that change us? In the hands of the Holy Spirit, how does this aspect of gospel doctrine change us? First, we come to realize we have been embraced in the loving arms of a holy God. We have full and free acceptance by this infinite God. I hope that at some point that breeds security and rest in your life because we work our tails off from week to week trying to earn the acceptance of those around us. And that battle, that struggle never ends. But hopefully in the gospel you've come to realize that you have full and complete acceptance. You're embraced in the loving arms of this holy and infinite God through the life Jesus lived and the death he died. If I have the smile of God, 
All other frowns are inconsequential. Second, it breeds a heart attitude of gratitude. On the purely human level, think for a minute about the times you have been most grateful for something, most thankful for something. What was that moment? Or what were those moments? I know for me, I have been most grateful when I've been the um, recipient of generosity I didn't feel I deserved. Insane generosity that I didn't deserve. So if being the recipient of undeserved generosity is what fuels gratitude, then Christians of all people on the planet should be the most grateful. We have been the recipients of infinite generosity. Has that bread in your life a heart of gratitude? The Apostle Paul writes in Colossians 3, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And lastly, when I realize that I have been embraced, loved, accepted by this loving God, it leads to obedience. I want to please the heart of this God who created me, sent his son to live and die for me, and now embraces me as one of his children. I want to please the heart of a God like that. This leads to the fruit of obedience in our lives. Titus chapter two, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Take a look at this. This little word it is important to grab. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It, it, the grace of God. The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These are 12 specific implications, applications of gospel doctrine and how in the hands of the Spirit it serves to change us. And throughout the course of my time here, Lord willing, we'll probe deeper into each one of those and how gospel doctrine works to embed those in our existence. But undergirding those 12 is one general way One general way, gospel doctrine changes us. Underneath these 12 specific ways is one general way gospel doctrine changes us. Through the year 2008, um, my wife and I had only seen pictures of the Grand Canyon, occasional TV specials of the Grand Canyon, um, and it was pretty high on her bucket list to be able to see it. She was pregnant with our first child and so we decided to go for it have one last uh, trip before the era of kids and uh, and so we went we went to the Grand Canyon we were pulling up to the place where we park and uh, and uh, the, our sight line of the Grand Canyon was blocked by a, a line of trees so we, we parked the car we headed to the first lookout um, 
place. And when we cleared the line of trees and I gazed at the Grand Canyon for the first time, I audibly gasped. I don't do that. I was overwhelmed by the enormity of this thing, the vastness of it. We, we stared at it for hours and it never got old. Now, as, as we're driving away from that, I'm thinking quietly, you know what? man, why was, my, why was my reaction to seeing it in person so incredibly different than my reaction to seeing pictures of it or watching it on TV? Well, television is two-dimensional. It gives you snippets of it, but it can't even come close to conveying the real glory of the Grand Canyon. Part of the problem in Christianity today is that we have either given up or just become lazy in attempting to portray the full glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're settling for two-dimensional snippets of it and it's taking us nowhere. There is one general way gospel doctrine serves to change us. And it's in this tiny little three-letter word, A-W-E, awe. Whether we realize it or not, the desires of our hearts, the words of our mouths, the behaviors of our bodies are driven by a longing for awe. Paul Tripp writes on this subject. He says, adultery is an awe problem. To the degree that you forget God's glory as the creator of your body and his place as owner of every aspect of your physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual personhood, to that degree, it is easier to use the members of your body to get whatever pleasure your heart craves. Power and control are awe problems. When you live with the rest and peace that come from keeping the power, authority, and sovereignty of God before your eyes, you don't need to work yourself into control over the people and situations in your life. Fear of man is an awe problem. When I forget that God's glory defines not only him, but who I have become as his child, I look to people to give me meaning, purpose, and identity. And as a pastor, awe of God will make me obsessed with not how much you respect me as a pastor, but how much you worship your Redeemer. Increasingly, that has become a prayer of mine. God, make me obsessed with how much these people worship you. The most fundamental way our hearts become awe-filled is through the three-dimensional glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the most fundamental way our hearts become awe-filled. You can't manufacture it some other way. 
Our hearts become all filled through the three-dimensional glory of the gospel. Isn't it awe-inspiring to consider that though we have rebelled against and defied the God who gives us each breath we breathe, he still, out of his love, mercy, and grace, sent his son into the world to live the life we should have lived and die the death we should have died so that we can be saved by his radical grace. Has that taken your breath away? Have you ever been overwhelmed by the enormity of this gospel? That is the three-dimensional glory of the good news. This is why Alliance Bible Church will be a church that gives people multiple exposures to the happy news of the gospel from one end of the Bible to the other. We will be a church that seeks to convey the gospel in all of its three-dimensional glory so that we may respond to the enormity of it with breathtaking awe. Let's pray. Loving and sovereign God, we grapple for the right words to convey the enormity of what your word calls the gospel. Human language just seems to fall so short sometimes at portraying the full glory of it. So we need you, God, through your spirit to illumine our minds and hearts to grasp even a glimmer of all you are and have done for us in Jesus. I pray you'd help us by your spirit, by your word, through your people, help us to see daily and clearly what this gospel is so that we may truly know what it is to have abundant life in you. We plead for these things for the good of your people and we plead these things for the glory of your son Jesus in whose name we pray, amen. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and glory and honor and praise. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And God's people said,